0: Mark 11, and we'll begin with verse 1 here this morning. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus has commanded, so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before, those who followed, cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful once again for your great love for us, Father. And this week, this time of year, we especially remember and celebrate Father the really the tragic death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a death that, that ended in victory, for He rose from the dead. Jesus paid for our sins. It offers to us forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, because He is a living and victorious Savior. And Father, we rejoice in that today and every day. And Father, thank You that as, your, as our Creator, Father, You came up with a plan to rescue us, for we rebelled against our Creator and have sinned against You, have neglected You, forgotten You, and even at times opposed You. Father, we're thankful that it's still for your great love wherewith you loved us that you have offered to us the forgiveness of sins, and that forgiveness is found in the person of Christ. So it's him we celebrate, it's him we worship today, it's him we want to remember every day, it's him we want to serve. And Father, it's him we want to learn about. As we gather today around your word, we pray that you would be our teacher and guide, help settle our hearts, give direction by your spirit to the teacher and to the listener that we might be taught of you today we might learn more of the wonderful love in person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we're thankful for each one who's here today and pray that we together could glorify and be taught of you. And, Father, we pray for those who aren't with us, whatever their needs are, Father, of the hour, that you would watch over them, that you would comfort them, encourage them, strengthen them, help them, direct them. And, Father, and I pray that together as a church family in this local community that we could shine as a light for you. Equip us for that, prepare us for that embolden us to be your witnesses direct us in our ministries both corporate and personal that we might continue to present and preach christ through life and limb. and so father we trust you'll be our teacher and guide now as we study together in jesus name amen Zechariah 9 9 prophesies this great event we just read about here in mark 11 and says this rejoice greatly o daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And these are just one of the prophecies that are fulfilled in, in the birth, life, and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one, specifically, in regards to him presenting himself as king, and it was in the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel of a coming king and kingdom. Much of the Old Testament language, especially the prophets, lend themselves to this theme, to the promise that God is going to send the Lord Jesus to put down all rule and authority to establish righteousness as he establishes his kingdom. And that's what this verse is about. And by the way, someone I read pointed out the fact that, donkey, that kings riding on donkeys was not necessarily a mark of humility, but a mark of royalty. Because in the, in, in, in the battle, kings rode on horses. Horses were a war machine. But in royalty, they rode on donkeys. We find that indicated in the scriptures. And so Jesus really was riding the, taking the position of royalty as a king and riding on this donkey and approaching Jerusalem. Yet as we read through this account, we find that this entry, the church likes to call the triumphal entry, really wasn't so triumphant, was it? Because, of the, because they rejected their king we call it a not so triumphal entry. This week, the Passion Week, was a tragic week because in it we find the betrayal of Jesus Christ, the denial of Jesus Christ, the arrest and trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and essence the rejection of their Messiah and their King. And someone has called this in reality a triumphal exit rather than a triumphal entry because jesus was about to accomplish our redemption the hour for which he had come as he said and enter enter heaven once again he was about to leave the leave this earth to enter heaven to later come to fulfill the promises of a king and kingdom and when he entered jerusalem he didn't enter to rent a home or set up a palace or to pick his court in reality although the crowds laid fi- these fig leaves as we believe they were on the road leading to jerusalem a few days later we find the crowd in jerusalem yelling crucify him crucify him in mark 15:14 he entered largely without fanfare in fact when you read through mark 11 in this portion here and on we find that jesus actually during his passion week as we call it is the 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 week of the the feast, we find that he entered three times in reality. In Mark the first one we just read about in Mark 11, which is probably the Sabbath he entered, but we in the end of our portion, he said when he got to Jerusalem, it was quiet. He looked around, it says in verse 11, it was an hour was late, and then he left. That's the summation of the entrance of the king. Though his disciples had celebrated his 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 march to Jerusalem, when he got there, they were not waiting for him or embracing him, were they not? The next day, probably Sunday, in verse twelve, it goes on to say, "Now the next day, when he came up from Bethany, he was hungry, and so on." The next day, he came again to Jerusalem, and and we find immediately with this lesson of the cursed fig tree when he comes. Here's the beginning in verse 13. And it's possibly symbolic of the deadness of the nation of Israel as he recognizes this, this fig tree will no longer produce fruit again. And maybe it's a reference to this entry which was not received. Because when Jesus stepped into history, he stepped into a nation, his people, his own, that were living dark in a dark spiritual days. We call the last 400 years of the Old Testament period the time of darkness. It was it was a dark days. It was a silent years because after Malachi, there's 400 years of, of no recorded revelation from the person of God to the people of God. In fact, the last three books of that time period, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are a book of, uh, of warning. And though Israel maybe had been restored to their land temporarily and returning from their captivity in Babylon, they, the God points out in those books that You've returned physically, but your hearts have not returned to me. They did not return to Him spiritually in service and worship, and, and appreciation. There was no heart change, and that's the and that's the period that Jesus walked into this time of darkness and spiritual apathy and indifference towards the things of God. And so we find He cursed the fig tree, and if you if jump down later, He and He cleanses the temple in verse fifteen, and. Then in verse 19, he left. He went out of the city. That was day two. That was appro- the second approach. The third one was the next morning in verse 20. Now the next morning, his third trip in, they passed by, they saw the fig tree, and we see him coming again. And in this next section, and on for a couple chapters, we find this this, this next day, this third day, this third t- approach, and we find lots of teachings, discussions. He's questioned. He questions the Pharisees. We find lessons in other books. We, we realize that this is the time when the upper room discourse, that wonderful section in John 13 through 17 occurs in his teaching disciples and preparing them for his departure. We find, we find the Olivet Discourse in this section when he tells them, when the disciples ask the question about when are these things going to happen, he tells them about the future and about the coming great tribulation. And his wonderful lessons during this time period. And and yet in the middle of this, if you jump to chapter 12, he gives them a lesson that is along this same theme we're looking at this morning, this idea of his rejection by his own people. So let's go to chapter 12 and let's pick it up in verse 1, where it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the vine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And he again he sent another, and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son his beloved, he also sent him to them last saying they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Really a tragic story, a tragic parable, but so aptly pictures Israel's treatment of God's prophets and eventually his son. And that's what Jesus, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy he's considering here, He's, he's teaching here. Because Israel was known as those who stoned the prophets. Luke 13, 34 says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jesus says, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now what this seems to indicate in this passage to these people to these Jews, these Pharisees who were rejecting their king, they were they were plotting to crucify him, to kill him, is that they knew what they're doing. Verse 7 says, the Bible judges said among themselves they had a plan, they had a plot. Let's kill the heir and, and take the booty, take over, take all the benefits for ourselves. Which maybe implies the fact that these leaders of Judaism, the Pharisees and all their disciples knew who Jesus really was under the surface. They knew what they were doing. They didn't want Jesus to ruin their religion, break up their game, to tell them what to do and so on. And they were the ones who were about to kill him. And he quotes this Old Testament passage to them in in this analogy, which makes it crystal clear that he was talking about himself, the stone. We looked at this Wednesday night, by the way, it's interesting how these things come together in our study of 1 Peter, but this passage, this quote from Isaiah chapter 6 is quoted six times in the New Testament in regards to Jesus Christ. The stone which the builders rejected, the builders are the leaders of Judaism, but God has laid him as the chief cornerstone, that which upon he's building his church. It's the Lord's doing, it's marvelous in, his, in, in their eyes. And yet these folks were fighting deliberately against God in the rejection of him. And this really summarizes the response he got in his entrance to Jerusalem that eventually led to his arrest and crucifixion. We also see another clue in this verse as a side note that he's gonna give the vineyard to others, which is a prediction of the fact that the gospel was gonna go to the Gentiles, that God was going to use a new entity to represent him. Because remember, when God chose Abraham to be to, to establish a nation through him, Genesis chapter 12, he did so for the purpose of bring, being his witness, being his light, being his communicator to the then known world. But by the time we get to Jesus, they, the, the Jewish leaders had turned this into a profitable religion a, religion, a religion that manipulated people through power and intimidation and fear, a religion that said you could be saved through works and through circumcision and so on. And they're the ones that Jesus battled, they're the ones that hung him on the cross. And he's telling them, because of this, I'm going to turn to another entity to represent me. And this time it's going to be a spiritual entity, a spiritual organism. It's going to be the establishment of the church. And in a practical way, in the book of Acts, which is the establishment of the universal church, the family of Christ, the body of Christ, Paul and Barnabas realized this in Acts 13.46 when they said, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. That you are the Jews. They were in the synagogue. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of this everlasting life, which is free, by the way, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And that's exactly the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here. It's going to be given to the Gentiles. And God is going to build a church made up of both Jew and Gentiles who come to Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ to represent him here, to be his servants and to cooperate with him in his ministry of, of restoring all things and reaching the loss for Christ. And what we find here is that this rejection, which had been perpetuated throughout Israel's history, always brought consequence. You know, this is not this is this was a recurring theme. Remember, he said, You always have killed the prophets. You always had those times in which you rejected my word and my messenger. And we find throughout their history that very fact. The book of Judges is is known as a book of, of cycles, in which Israel, who walked with their God for a period of time, became apathetic and then became rebellious, and then God disciplined them because they were rejecting His 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 Lordship in their lives, His 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 leading in their lives, His Word. To, to direct them. And after he disciplines them, after a period of time, they come to themselves and they repent and they come back to their God and God restores them and they enjoy a fresh relationship again. And then the cycle continues over and over again. That's a book of Judges. And it's gone on throughout their history. And it happens once again here in the culmination of the of most tragic rejection of all, to reject God himself on the earth. And and what we find here, that if you turn over to Mark 13 in this third day lesson time, discussion time, it says, then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones, what buildings are here? He says, isn't this an impressive building? And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings, these huge stones? Now one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now this was mentioned in other times in Jesus' teaching, but what Jesus is predicting here is the discipline that's coming. Because the builders, Judaism, its leaders, and its people rejected the cornerstone, he says this building is going to be left in shambles. And see, see, God always brought physical punishment, discipline upon his people who were a physical people looking for a physical kingdom, looking for a physical king, but they rejected their king. So God was going to put them under discipline, and we find that Roman General Titus in AD seventy or so decimated Israel, and not one stone was left. It was knocked to pieces. It was torn down. And it, it symbolizes the discipline from God towards his people, Israel, because once again, they rejected their king. And that's why the Passion Week is a tragic week. It's a week of that, that records for us the rejection of their king. In fact, we find, according to Romans 9 through 11, that Israel is under that discipline yet today. They're still scattered today. Though there is a small percentage of the Jews in the world in Israel, they are scattered as a people. They are not right with their God. They're under that discipline, but they will be restored someday. You know, this idea, this this concept of man repeatedly rejecting God is also in prophecy, that things yet future for us. In the book of Revelation, we find that God is going to discipline the, the world for rejecting their god because this gentile world this time of the this times of the gentiles as God calls it and the church is primarily made up of gentiles Jews as well but primarily gentiles is a, is a time in which <coughs> the gentiles are drifting away from their god they're departing from their god and you look all over the place and you see uh, apologetic ministries and and church ministries that are that are just wondering why Why is the church attendance shrinking? Why are people getting away from the teaching of the word of God? Why are they turning to alternative methods of spirituality or unbiblical methods (coughs) of spirituality? Because once again, people are beginning to reject and turn from their God. And the tribulation period that Jesus prophesies about here in in this section in the Olivet Discourse describes a great tribulation like the world never knew. And if you read the book of Revelation, as we're doing in men's Bible study, it's just like reading a horror, a horror movie, a science fiction movie, of all the, the great tragedies that God is going to rain down upon this earth. But in the middle of those passages, you find this comment by John, who, who observed this vision, who wrote the record. He said, even after this, even it was after it was blatantly obvious that God himself was, was judging an ungodly world, even so they did not repent from their wicked deeds even in that situation where it became crystal clear to them that there could only be one source of this judgment, that God himself was trying to turn the world back to himself as he judged this ungodly world, even then, they rejected him. Well, we find this rejection not only something we can point back to Passion Week and think of those who hung our God, our Savior, upon the cross, though it was in God's sovereign plan. People today reject the simplicity and wonder of grace, do they not? When they hear of the offer of salvation, when the Spirit of God draws them to to the Savior and they see this freedness of grace, there are people who reject. People who who come to maybe get a glimpse of the unconditional love of God for them. I had a discussion one time with a fellow who was a Hindu and and, uh, didn't really want to talk about religion, but we talked a little bit about the history of religion and the theory of religion. and Of course, the conversation got to explain and. The core of Christianity is the free love of God, the grace of God given to people freely. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption the, that is in Christ Jesus. And for someone that came from that work-based religion that cult, saw that grace, how, that how free grace was, he said, I never heard of such a thing. He said, that's just, that's just unheard of. That type of approach to God, that God can forgive people unconditionally and freely by his grace because Jesus Christ so completely paid for on the cross for our sins, that God could offer us free salvation, and yet he did not embrace it. And we've seen that, we see that today. People reject the evidence of creation and come up with these wild theories and excuses called evolution, which are really so unbelievable, it's, it's unthinkable, and yet they embrace them because they're rejecting the, the real evidence of a designer, of a creator. People, people ignore the accuracy of the prophetic word, one prophecy we read today that was written hundreds of years before Jesus rode that donkey. They reject the witness of the word of God, the reality of changed lives and people. All the things God uses to draw them, people today often reject, just like they did then. You know, and it's because the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator, the living God, the author of life, the example of life, the giver of life, when he comes in contact with someone who's, who's dead in sin, it demands a response. You know, in Isaiah fifty-five eleven. The prophet said this, or God said this through the prophet. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. You see, the living word of God demands a response because it's a living word. It's the very words of God. It's the words of life, and it demands a response. And that's why people for years have said, you know, there's two things you don't discuss over Thanksgiving dinner, politics and religion. And people may discuss politics, but rarely religion. Because the word of God demands a response. And when God says, it shall not return to me void, (laughs) means when the word of God is given out, it is going to get a response. Now it may be an embracing, an appreciation, or it may be a rejection, but it is going to get a response. And that's what occurred here in in Mark 11 and onward. The Passion Week, this week of the feast, was was brought to a culmination all the the years of ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and their rejection of the truth he taught of the love he showed of the power and grace he demonstrated that brought that reaction. And it always does. And that's why even today, that's the offer we get. John 3.18 says this, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. You see, there's two responses, isn't it? He who believes, when God demonstrates his love towards us and the Spirit of God works in our heart, he who believes is not condemned. What a wonderful promise. Because we are born condemned under sin. According to the Bible, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he who does not believe is condemned already. If we do not believe, we're already condemned. Why? Because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, Jesus' death on the cross, his person, his life, demands... A response. John 3.36, a few verses later, says this, He who believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's a choice we must make. John 5.24 says this, a couple chapters later, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we see, just like the nation of Israel was faced with a decision, there were those who embraced the king. They they said, Hosanna, and laid fig leaves on the road that led to Jerusalem. But on the inside of the city, there were those who were plotting to execute him. So it is today. There are those who embrace the love of God and say thank you and put their trust in Jesus as their Savior, and there are those who remain condemned because of the rejection of the love of God. And though we may criticize those who nailed him to the cross, humanity seems to repeat it over and over again, do they not? Well, this plot continues if you jump to chapter 14 in during this Passion Week, which is Passover week or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice verse one of chapter 14, where it says after two days, so this is two days later after this time of teaching, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And they recognized there was enough disciples of Christ that would, that would cause an uproar. So They didn't want to do it during the feast. Now, this feast is significant, isn't it? It was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you turn with me back to Leviticus 23 for a moment, Let's talk about this feast because it is significant here in the whole scheme of things. Leviticus chapter 23. And we find Leviticus 23 is the feast of the Lord. Seven feasts mentioned. And these were feasts for Israel. These were meant to be a remembrance or lessons in the the, the lives of Israel, God's chosen people in this Old Testament period as they lived under God's rule and God's direction. But in these feasts, we also see pictured for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are times in the New Testament, the New Testament pulls from these celebrations, lessons that are appropriate and pertinent to you, to you and I today. The two, the two we're t- discussing for during Passion Week are Passover and Unleavened Bread, though they're in reality one feast. They were instituted at the same time, during the time of the first Passover and e- in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And this feast starts with a Passover meal and a remembrance of the time God passed over the those who put the blood on the post and on the, on, the, on the header. And then it continues for seven days of eating unleavened bread. That's God's instruction. For seven days, you're gonna eat unleavened bread. In fact, they were even to remove all leaven from their homes. But why, what did that symbolize? Because remember, Israel was a sign people. They learned through signs and symbols. But we know that leaven in the scriptures seems to represent sin. Sin which has a tendency to spread. Whether it's in our life, sin tends to grow and spread, or in a community, or in a family, or in a nation. Sin is like leaven in, in the in, in the Bible. And so eating unleavened bread represented purity, didn't it? It represented for the fact in in Israel that they were being delivered from Egypt, which is a picture of the world, to live. Holy lives, pure lives, sinless lives. That was the whole purpose of it. And they were to celebrate the celebration with pure hearts and and pure lives. And so it really calls our uh, pictures are called a purity in our redemption and salvation, just as it was in Israel. And so Jesus' Passion Week was during this time. And if you go back to Mark 14, I didn't read this here, I'm sorry. Let's let's read to verse 4 leviticus 23 where it says these are the feasts of the lord holy convocations which you you shall proclaim at their appointed times on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the lord's passover and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the lord seven days you must eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall have a holy convocation you shall do no customary work on it but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the lord for seven days The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. you shall do no customary work on it. Now we find more specifics in in Exodus chapter 12, but this is the feast that was occurring. The Passover, which involved the sacrifice of a lamb, picturing the lamb of God. And we find then this seven days of eating unleavened bread. Now, if you turn back to Mark, once again, 14, I should have told you to keep your marker there, your finger there we find here that Jesus is going to associate himself with the Passover lamb. Because you remember in Exodus chapter 12, when God delivered them from Egypt, he told them that, that they were to, in basics, in a summary, and there's a lot of detail in that chapter, but they were to take an unblemished lamb and they were to, to sacrifice it. They were gonna consume all of it, which pictures Jesus being consumed for our sins. And they were to put its blood on the doorpost and on the header, the lintel, the header, over them. And then when the angel of death passed over Egypt, those who had the blood on the post, both Israel and any Egyptians who put themselves under the blood would be rescued, would be saved, would be delivered. That's the Passover that they were to celebrate yearly. Year after year, this feast was to go on associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, here in Mark chapter 14, let's pick it up in verse 12. Where he says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? They were going to celebrate the Passover. Jesus always fulfilled all righteousness, didn't he? As a, even as a Jew on the earth. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he, whenever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. So the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus assuredly said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One by one is it I, And another is it I. And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. When he had given things, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, here in this Passover celebration, Jesus adds to the Passover celebration, doesn't he? This is not something they customarily did during the Passover celebration. Instead, he took this occasion during this meal, during this relaxed time of fellowship, while well, they're enjoying the Passover meal and remembering the deliverance of, God, of, of Israel by God, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Well, the disciples may not have fully understood, but what Jesus was doing here was associating himself with the Passover lamb. This was the day the Passover lamb was killed. This is during the pa- Passover week in which they celebrated God's deliverance as they put themselves under the blood of the lamb. In fact, Luke 22 gives a little more detail to this. It says this in, in the book of Luke. It says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And he does the same thing with the cup. And so he gives a little more detail in the book of Luke. He says, this is my body which is given for you, which is broken for you, we see in Corinthians. And thereby this, Though the disciples may not have fully understood, and we find that here in the scriptures, Jesus was associating himself with that Passover lamb. He was saying, I'm going to be that Passover lamb. I'm going to be the one who is going to give my life for you. That's the key words in that passage, for you. This is broken for you. I'm dying for you. And he had told them earlier, Mark 8:31, that he was going to die and rise again. And so, so during this Passover celebration, he institutes the Lord's table and associates himself with the Passover lamb. <laughs>